Great to see everybody this morning. Hope you all had a wonderful Easter and enjoyed that time. Easter's kind of the, in my mind, the turning point and kind of points us in the direction of spring and the warm weather coming. And so as we move into the spring and uh, uh, into hopefully uh, the warmer summertime as well, then uh, we are looking forward to starting a new series here on Sunday mornings. Uh, if you happen to vi be visiting with us today, you came at a great time. My name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad, that, always welcome to have those who are visiting and guests with us. But we're going to be starting a series through the book of James, as you've probably heard by now, and we'll be in that book through the spring and into most of the summer uh, with an occasional break here and there. So today, I want to sort of kick that series off by doing sort of an overview of the book of James, an introduction, if you will, to this letter. And so the text we're going to look at today is just one verse, James 1.1, and the title of the message is just getting to know James. Well, I don't know how many of you have ever had the opportunity to be present during the birth of a child. And when I say present, I don't mean like in the waiting room present. I mean present, you know, present in the actual delivery room where the birth is taking place. And uh, I can still very vividly remember the birth of our first child 35 years ago. Uh, Deborah, we had, you know, we had taken the classes and, you know, we're kind of prepared for what would happen. And, and I sort of expected that I'd sort of be in there with my wife, you know, and I'd be helping her breathe and, you know, maybe telling her to push a little bit or something like that. And everything would kind of go smoothly and it'd be this wonderful experience. Didn't quite turn out that way. Um, there were some complications, and Margaret had to have a C-section uh, in terms of that delivery. And uh, nothing in those classes prepared me for that. And so I can remember as we were in the delivery room, and she's lying on the, the bed, and there's a, a, a screen across the halfway down her body so she can't see kind of what's going on down there. And I'm sitting up there on, on the, her, where her head is and kind of talking with her. And, and while she can't see what's going on over that screen, I can see everything that's going on over that screen. And so as I'm sitting there watching and they, you know, make an incision in her abdomen, and that's kind of weird in and of itself. You're sitting there talking to your wife, watching them, you know, make an incision in her abdomen. But I remember thinking, wow, that incision seems really small. And I was not prepared for what happened next because the nurses and the doctors, they literally put their hands inside that incision and began to pull and stretch. And I'm watching this thinking, there's no way human flesh should be able to withstand what you're doing in this moment. I mean, it was severe. And not only are they pulling and stretching in some way that looks damaging, but they're pushing and pressing on her abdomen. And I'm thinking, if there is a baby in there, I'm concerned you're going to kill it. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there watching this and, and how surreal it is because Margaret and I are talking while this is going on. You know, she's, she's not feeling a thing. 
And it was like being in the twilight zone. It really was. And so eventually, after they push and press, Deborah pops out. She did. She popped out. And when she was first taken from the wound, there were like several seconds when there was no movement or sound. And I'm sitting there wondering, did they kill her? You know, I, I'm, I'm anxiously concerned. Was everything okay? Was she alive? Was she all right? And then I heard her cry, and she began moving her arms and legs. And it was only when I saw her move and heard her cry that I knew she was alive and okay. <laughs> and in this letter, James has a similar concern, I think, for those he considers his spiritual children. And he's not concerned for their physical life, but he is very concerned for their spiritual lives and well-being. He's concerned about their faith being alive. He wants them to have a faith that's real and alive. And just as we can tell that someone is physically alive by the fact that they move and speak, James knows, and he wants us as his readers to know, that faith that is real and alive is evidenced by what we do and say as well. And so we'll come back to the theme and content of this letter in a bit. But before we look at what this letter is about, let's take a few minutes to understand a little bit about James and the background for why he is writing. I mean, who was James? Who is he writing this letter to? Why is he writing this letter? Because I think if we understand something about the background and circumstances that led to this letter being written, it will help us to be able to interpret it correctly and to apply what it has to say to our lives today. So before we dig into that a little bit, let's take a moment and pray and ask God to be with us. Lord, as we begin this new series, Lord, this is your word that we are looking at. And Lord, I just pray for your grace for me today to represent it accurately and faithfully and in accordance with what you would want to say about this letter. And I pray, Lord, that even in this introduction to this letter, you might meet us in, with your spirit's presence today. And you might speak to our hearts and our minds and, Lord, um, minister your grace and kindness and blessing to each one here. Lord, I believe you have things for us as a church and as individuals from this letter that you want to do, things you want to accomplish, things you want to say to us. And so, Lord, we just ask you to do that for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in many ways, James is one of the most popular books in all the New Testament. It may also be the most frequently quoted book in the New Testament. The teaching in James is very practical, it's very concise, it's not highly theological in its content, but really pretty straightforward in what it says. 
And James is a master at using metaphors and illustrations throughout the letter, really to make his teaching easy to understand. But while it is one of the most popular New Testament books, in some ways it is also one of the most controversial. While it was accepted and used very quickly in some parts of the early church, other parts of the church did not accept it so readily. And it was actually one of the last books to be officially accepted into the canon of Scripture. And while it is fully accepted as Scripture today, there would still be many different views on what this letter is about and how the different parts of it relate to one another. So who was James and why is he writing this letter? And so let's look at our text for today in James 1.1 where we meet James and it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So who was James? Well, the answer to this question is a little tricky because there are at least four men, different men named James that we run across in the New Testament. But verse 1 tells us one thing that's very important about this particular James, and that is that he was well known to those that he is writing to who live really in a number of different countries. And we can see that because he gives no credentials, he gives no title, he doesn't like Paul in his letters say an apostle, he just says James. It's like if I wrote a letter and I just signed it Don. And I do that at times, I write letters sometimes to this church family and sometimes I just sign them Don. Because if you're a part of this church family, I'm thinking you probably know who I am. But I wouldn't write a letter to the other churches in the Baltimore area and just sign it Don. I mean, they would have no clue who I am and no, no reason in the world to listen to anything that I would have to say. And so James is writing to those who know him well, and this factor would eliminate all but two of the men named James that we find in the New Testament as possible authors of this letter. And so the first candidate we might look at would be James, the brother of John, who was one of the disciples. I mean, certainly this James would have been well known. He was not only a disciple of, the, of one of the twelve, but he was one of the inner circle of disciples, of the, the three disciples that were closest to Jesus. Jesus' inner circle, if you will, was Peter, James, and John. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus took with him up on the mountain to witness the transfiguration. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus took with him when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and took them off to be with him when he was agonizing in prayer. But the problem is, this James was executed by Herod Agrippa sometime between 41 and 44 AD before the earliest date that this letter would have been written. So that really leaves us with only one viable candidate as the writer of this letter, and that's James, 
the half-brother of Jesus. And we run into James, the brother of Jesus, in Matthew 13, when Jesus is doing his ministry and returns to his hometown, and he's teaching in the synagogue there, and he's doing some healings and some other works there. And, and the people who kind of grew up with Jesus, they're, they're not very receptive to what's going on. And they're saying, what is this? Who is this Jesus? I mean, where did he get all this wisdom and understanding? And we see their response to him in Matthew 13, 55. They say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And so there we see James. And it's not clear exactly when James came to faith in Jesus as his the Messiah and Savior. Because to be honest, it seems like for most of Jesus' ministry, his family members would not have been considered among his followers. I mean, John tells us in John 7, Verse 5, he says, For not even his brothers believed in him. They thought he was crazy during his time of ministry, and there's no mention of James ever being present at the cross when Jesus was crucified. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared specifically to James. We find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. It says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So perhaps it was at that moment that James saw who Jesus really was. That when he was face to face with the resurrected Jesus, maybe then he understood that Jesus wasn't just his crazy half-brother who had some unique powers and abilities. Maybe then he understood that Jesus really was the Son of God who came into this world in human form. Maybe James finally realized that Jesus didn't die on a cross, the victim of the Romans and the Jewish authorities, but he died because he gave himself to be a substitute, to pay for the sins of sinners like us, to rescue us from the power of sin and death. And maybe it was as he encountered the resurrected Jesus that he realized that Jesus was who he claimed to be and his resurrection was the proof and James put his faith in Jesus in that moment just as God would call all of us to do. And by the time James write this, writes this letter, he describes himself in verse 1. He says, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James became a believer in Jesus. And we later find James in Jerusalem where he is included as one of the apostles. When the apostle Paul goes up to Jerusalem in Galatians 1, 18 and 19, it says this. He says, then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Cephas is Peter. 
It says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then finally, we see James as the head of the church in the city of Jerusalem. When Luke is recording the events of Acts and Paul is returning from one of his missionary journeys and goes up to Jerusalem, Luke records this. He says, when we had come to Jerusalem in Acts 21, 17 and 18, he says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So that's James. And the Bible doesn't tell us how James died. Some accounts say he was stoned by the religious authorities. But the historians, Hegesippus and Josephus, tell us a different story. They say that James died in 62 or 63 AD and that he was executed by the Jewish religious leaders by being thrown from the highest point of the temple because he wouldn't renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And so the James that wrote this letter is the half-brother of Jesus who was also the head of the Jerusalem church. So who is he writing to? Well, the words in verse 1 clearly identify this book as a letter. But it is somewhat unusual as a letter in how it is addressed. In verse 1, it says it is addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. And the word dispersion here really just means those who are scattered abroad. So this is addressed to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. And so this is not a letter addressed to an individual church in a specific location. So who is James writing to? Who are the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad? And this terminology, 12 tribes, it could, it's the common way that the nation of Israel was referred to. But it was also could be used to refer to the church because the church is often spoken about in the New Testament as the new Israel. But the audience seems to be primarily Jewish believers. And we can sort of tell that because throughout this letter, there are many references to Old Testament things and Jewish law, and Gentile believers would not have really had much of a clue about what those things were all about. So it seems like he's writing mostly to Jewish believers, and so he could be referring to mostly Jewish Christians who are simply living scattered throughout this region. But it's possible that many are Jewish Christians who have been forced to flee from Jerusalem because of persecution. See, if you remember the story of the beginnings of the church in Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts, the church was born on Pentecost, and Pentecost was this great a festival that brought Jewish people from all over the world to Jerusalem. And when they're all gathered there for Pentecost, the Spirit comes and falls, and thousands of people begin to get saved. 
And so the church is growing by countless numbers day by day and people are getting saved and all kinds of amazing things are going on and people are selling their property and sharing it with one another and miraculous works are taking place and there's this community of believers that's thriving and growing and and as it does it begins to attract the hostility of the Jewish religious leaders and that hostility continues to grow until it kind of culminates in Acts 8 with the stoning of Stephen, one of the prominent people in the church at that time. And so what Acts tells us is after Stephen was killed, when he was stoned, that a great persecution arose and many Christians had to flee Jerusalem to escape that persecution. And by the time we get to Acts 11:19, we hear these words that Luke tells us. He says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So James is writing to Jewish Christians, many of whom may have formerly been part of his church congregation in Jerusalem. And that may be why he doesn't need to identify himself any more than just James. You see, they know who he is. For many of them, he had been their main pastor or elder. And so James writes this letter sometime between 44 and 49 A.D. And it will be one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. And if you're wanting to kind of place it in the timeline of the events of the book of Acts, it would have been written somewhere around chapters 12 through 14 and the things that were going on there before the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. And so James is writing because he is concerned about what is happening to the faith of his former church members as they have been scattered to these different places. And these Jewish believers are trying to establish new lives in strange and often hostile environments. And most of them are... economically very poor. They're experiencing poverty and difficult circumstances. And many of them are being taken advantage of by others and perhaps even some by their own people, it seems. And in the challenges of their dislocation, they are losing some of their spiritual moorings. And they're being tempted by worldliness and worldly values. They're being tempted to hold their faith as something personal and private so they can fit in more easily with those around them. And they're doubting God's goodness and that he is for them in the difficulty of their circumstances. And they are drifting towards selfishness and thinking that their lives are their own to do with what they want. And it is being displayed in their words and their actions toward one another and those around them. 
You see, they are drifting from a living faith. And so James is writing to exhort them, to admonish them in some sense, and to encourage them. He's writing to stir them to live out their Christian faith in a way that is real and alive. Faith that is real and alive is evidenced by what we say and what we do. See, real faith is faith that works. And if there's a theme or a big idea to this letter, that would be it. Real faith is faith that works. And there are a number of things that James teaches us about how real faith works in this letter. So this morning, I'm just going to briefly touch on three kind of broad themes that kind of we see throughout this letter. And the first one is that real faith is seen in how we understand and respond to trials. See, the believers he's writing to, they see trials as just being bad. And James wants them to know that while trials can be difficult and challenging, real faith understands that God has a good purpose for trials in our lives. And the very first words that come out of his pen in writing this letter after he introduces himself in James 1 verse 2 is this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. See, James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. See, real faith knows that God builds our character and our maturity through trials. That trials teach us to depend on God far more than we learn in times of prosperity. Real faith understands that God is in absolute control of all of our trials and difficulties. That he is working all things, even our trials, together for our good. And that he will deliver us and he will reward us for persevering in those trials in his perfect timing, either in this life or when he returns. See, real faith is faith that works when we encounter trials and difficulties. The second theme that I think we see throughout this letter is that real faith acts on what it believes. You see, they think that real, that faith is just something they think or believe in their mind. And while faith does involve what we think and believe in our minds, James wants us to see that real faith not only believes, but believes in a way that acts on what we believe. You know, some of you may remember about 10 or 11 years ago, there was a man named Nick Walenda who was a member of what was called the Flying Walendas, a very famous Uh, acrobatic family that performed aerial feats on high wires and uh, in different situations. And and so Nick Walenda decided that he was going to 
walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And that got a lot of buzz during that time. And so Nick Willendez, he planned this out. You know, he made sure that, and see, walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls, it's not just that it's hundreds of feet above the water. And it's not just that the distance is over 1,100 feet that you have to cross. But the conditions around those falls are such that there is often gusts of wind that are up to 75 miles an hour that come out of nowhere. And so Nick Willenda made sure that he had every kind of safety precaution in place and he had a helicopter available that if something should happen and he needed to be rescued. And he did cross, he did walk across Niagara Falls on a tight wire. But what Nick Willenda did was really nothing to even compare with what a man named Charles Blondin did in the 1850s. Because Charles Blondin was also an aerialist, an acrobat, and he too determined that he was going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Except Charles Blondin had no safety backup precautions at all. And Charles Blondin did walk across Niagara Falls on a rope. But he didn't just do it once. He did it numerous times. He walked across Niagara Falls blindfolded. He walked across on a rope on stilts. He rode a bicycle across a rope on Niagara Falls. He walked across and stopped in the middle and did somersaults and did tricks. He walked across in a backpack with cake and champagne carrying a chair and stopped in the middle of the tightrope and ate the cake and drank the champagne. He walked across carrying someone on his back. We have a picture of him doing just that. And he walked across with a wheelbarrow with a stove in it where he literally stopped in the middle of the Niagara Falls, cooked an omelet, lowered it on a rope to a boat in the water below for someone to eat. I mean, can you, can you just imagine? I mean, that's just crazy that he would do this in all these times with no safety precaution at all. But you know, one of the more well-known accounts that's related to what Charles Blondin did is, if you could bring up the picture, this is a picture of him with a, carrying someone, or carrying the stove in a wheelbarrow. <clears throat> so when he got to the other side, after he finished this feat, um, and you know, the crowd is, they're, they're going crazy, right? To see this. I mean, this, this had to be an amazing thing to witness. And so he gets across and he, he gets the wheelbarrow onto the other side and, and he asks somebody in the crowd, he says, do you think that I can take a person in the wheelbarrow across? And they said, yeah, sure, I know you can, I believe you can. And so Charles Blondin says, well, get in the wheelbarrow. And the guy says, no way. Well, see, James would tell us that real faith gets in the wheelbarrow. James tells us that faith that doesn't result in actions and words that live out that faith, that that faith simply isn't real. 
And so one of the more notable lines from his letter in James 2.26, he says, faith apart from works is dead. See, real faith doesn't just hear God's word. It acts on it. It does what it says. And faith that doesn't act on what we believe isn't real faith at all. Real faith is faith that works. And then the third theme that we see in this letter is that real faith shows itself in how we honor God and one another in what we do and how we speak. See, these believers thought their faith was a private matter, that they could have real faith regardless of how they acted or treated one another. And they were losing the connection between what they believed and the way they lived. And they were quarreling and complaining against one another. They were cursing and swearing. In James 1.26, James says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. See, they were far more concerned about their own selfish desires than they were about honoring God and one another. And James says, no, that's not the way real faith works. That's not how one who belongs to Jesus Christ lives. Real faith seeks to be a peacemaker. Real faith is humble, putting God and others first in how we live our lives. In James 3.13, he says this, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. See, real faith prays for others. It seeks the good of others. It seeks to be an influence to help others pursue godliness and good in their lives. And real faith is not a private matter. It honors God and one another in what we do and how we speak. Because real faith is faith that works. And that's what James wants his readers to see and understand through this letter. And I believe that's what God wants us to see and understand as we consider this letter as well. So, as we prepare to study through this book together, here's what I would ask you to do as application from this message today. Two things. Number one, read through this book this week. It's pretty short. You can probably do it in about 20 minutes. But read the whole letter in one sitting, if you can, just to get a feel for it. And then the second thing I would ask you to do is that each week I would ask you to prepare for the upcoming Sunday by reading the passage that will cover that week. And so we're going to put <clears throat> excuse me, the entire schedule on our website so you'll know exactly when we're covering what sections. And uh, there'll be a link in the house news. You can access it on the website or through the house news. And if you would like, you can also sign up for our sync text service, and you can get the text for that week sent directly to you. But spend some time thinking and meditating on that particular passage prior to the Sunday message 
maybe in your devotional times, so that you can come prepared to really hear God speak through his word as we go through this letter. And so I'll give you a head start. Next week, we'll be covering chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. So if you want to make note of that for next week. But the words in this book, they're God's words. And they have power to change and transform our lives if we will listen and respond with real faith. If I could have the worship team come. You know, even though this short letter was written about 2,000 years ago, things haven't changed all that much in the kinds of issues we face in our Christian lives today. And James offers us clear, practical instruction on the kinds of things we face every day. Things like trials and difficult circumstances, poverty and prosperity, favoritism and unfair treatment by others, the importance of our words and the things we say, worldliness and selfishness, how we plan out our lives, what we take pride or boast in, prayer and sickness. And James wants these believers that he loves, these Jewish Christians, many of whom were at one time part of his church family, he wants them to have real living faith, faith that works. And I believe God wants to use this book to encourage and to exhort us to have faith that works as well so that we don't fall into the same temptations and snares that some of those believers were experiencing. See, God wants our faith to be real and alive. He wants us to have a faith that shapes us to be more and more like Jesus as we live it out in what we say and do. And he wants us to see through these words written by James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, that real faith is faith that works. So let's close by standing and singing together.